poetry is the silence and speech between a wet, struggling root of a flower and a sunlit blossom of that flower. Poetry is an enumeration of birds, bees, babies, butterflies, bugs, bambinos, babayagas, and bipeds beating their way up bewildering bastions. Poetry is a fresh morning spider web telling a story of moonlit hours of weaving and waiting during a night. Poetry is a phantom script telling how rainbows are made and why they go away. This is The Phantom Script, a poetry reading podcast. Lines from Carl Sandburg's whimsical definitions of poetry are what we heard at the top. Perhaps he found that the only or the best way to describe poetry was through poetic language itself. He knew there is no getting around the lingering notion that the practice of poetics is a little bit spooky. No one really knows its chronological origins, and its inspirational forces are often mysteriously described. The muses, the unconscious, Most writers would agree, definitions only serve to narrow the subject. Jorge Luis Borges declared, Poetry is something that cannot be defined without oversimplifying it. It would be like attempting to define the color yellow, love, the fall of leaves in autumn. If all of this works only to entitle the craft with more mystery, Be advised, poets work at this craft. The source word from the Greek, poiesis, means to make, and really to make from nothing. A poem is constructed. Poets lean in to hear other writers' voices. They read, borrow, reframe from this generative landscape, which some call a collective imagination. In his book, Making Our Own Days, poet and teacher Kenneth Koch proposes that poetry uses another language, or a language within a language. Its writers and readers are captivated by the sound of this language. It is a musical language, helping the reader, listener see and hear beyond the mundane. Poets use the same raw material deployed in speech, prose, and rhetoric, and produce something wholly different. Poetry predates literacy as song, and Koch says this language comes from pre-verbal impulses, celebrating sound. I like this notion that it is the pre-verbal inspiration that helps to produce the Phantom Script.
My name is Vincent Hostack. While I write, my central credentials for starting this podcast are that I read quite a lot of poetry, and when I read, it is almost always aloud. In this podcast, I'll read largely from work that's in the public domain. Occasionally, I'll host guests and scholars reading their own work. Hopefully, I'll help others enjoy this cultural art form which has moved humans for some 5,000 years. For this episode, we'll concentrate on a rich theme expressed in very musical modes. A time of profound change. The turning of the year toward midwinter. And maybe we'll drive the cold winter away or draw its comforts closer. We'll start with the grand master of musicality in language. William Shakespeare wrote sonnets throughout his career. 154 were published at once in a quarto in 1609. The sonnet has many forms and was practiced by court poets before Shakespeare as far back as the 13th century. The Shakespearean sonnet characteristically contained 14 lines, an alternating rhyme scheme of A-B-A-B, and a final rhyming couplet. These sonnets often ended with a kind of summation of the idea and spirit of the poem. For example, After commencing a poem with the argument that his lover might be compared to a summer's day, Shakespeare unbinds that resemblance almost immediately, asserting by the final couplet that his love would live at least as long as humanity persists, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. It's a rather strict form, but it is the ideas presented with great musicality which make it ring with truth to our ears. So with 154 to choose from, let's get started with a winter sonnet. And it begins with a similar comparison, this time on the theme of absence. This is Sonnet 97. How like a winter hath my absence been. By William Shakespeare. How like a winter hath my absence been from thee. The pleasure of the fleeting year. What freezings have I felt. What dark days seen. What old December's bareness everywhere. And yet this time removed was summer's time. The teeming autumn, big with rich increase. Bearing the wanton burden of the prime, like widowed wombs after their lord's decease. Yet this abundant issue seemed to me but hope of orphans, an unfathered fruit, 
for summer, and his pleasures wait on thee, and thou away, the very birds are mute, or if they sing, tis with so dull a cheer that leaves look pale, dreading the winter's near. Here's Emily Dickinson's winter-themed poem, number 45. This has been called Snowflakes, but Dickinson famously did not title her poems in manuscripts. The cataloging and numbering occurred in collections like the edition by R.W. Franklin. This is number 45, or Snowflakes. I counted till they danced so, their slippers leaped the town, and I took a pencil to note the rebels down. And then they grew so jolly, I did resign the prig, and ten of my once stately toes are marshaled for a jig. I'm planning a show on Emily in the fall to coincide with the timing of the Tell It Slant Poetry Festival. That event is presented by the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst and features a marathon reading of all her known published poems. Thomas Hardy is largely remembered for his novels, but he was a prolific poet. Written near a holiday, this is The Darkling Thrush by Thomas Hardy. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres, and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the sentry's corpse outlent, his crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, his death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once, a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt, and small, in blast peruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew 
and I was unaware. There's a great deal of atmosphere in this poem, more prosaic than Dickinson. Also, this end-of-century sense of defeat and despair, so little cause for carolines. But the delight of hearing the thrush making happy goodnight air and blessed hope. The latter joys are a thing the poet would have the reader believe eluded his understanding. But rather than diminishing the creature as ignorant of the despair felt by one or more humans, he observes it and speaks of it with deep respect. He seems to leave the scene with at least a fragment of this primal hope of which he was formerly unaware. The holiday, it's New Year's at the end of the century. This was written in the end of December 1900. Another poet from this period is Edward Thomas. He wrote mostly while at war. In fact, he lost his life at age 39 in France, 1917, World War I. He also tapped into this sense of knowing held by so-called lesser beasts. Again, it is a bird carrying the lesson, a rook. This is Thaw by Edward Thomas. Over the land, freckled with snow half thawed, the speculating rooks at their nests cawed and saw from elm-tops delicate as flowers of grass. What we below could not see, winter, pass. So I seem to have invited cold in and embraced it, more than driven the cold winter away. Look for another episode in a week or so in this emerging new year when I'll happily waste some time here, in the words of William Shakespeare. Until then, look to the rook and the thrush, and please stay warm.